Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Terminus Modern Ballet Theater had a brainy idea to explore neuroscience, technology, and ethics via dance with renowned choreographer Troy Schumacher. Later this hour, we'll hear about Step the Brain Along a Path, a collaboration with Terminus, Georgia Tech, and Emory researchers. Plus, speaking of the arts, our series of local artists in their own words. Today, with painter Alex Wagner. First, with their surreal images and dreamlike quality often rooted in memory, The films of Federico Fellini are among the most provocative, dazzling, and innovative ever produced. Emory Cinematheque is screening several movies by the great Italian film director in a series titled Federico Fellini, A Centennial Celebration. The screenings will be accompanied by Q&A sessions as well as lectures from Emory's Film and Media Studies Professor Matthew Bernstein and Senior Lecturer of Italian Studies Dr. Angelo Porcarelli. They join me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Lois. It's great to be back. Wonderful to have you both. The humorist and social observer Fran Leibovitz wrote, It wasn't until I visited Rome that I realized Fellini made documentaries. Would you talk about his unique sensibility and why Federico Fellini is such an important figure in cinema. All right, let's start big. He has a unique approach to making films. He started out with the Italian neorealists. He was a screenwriter and a humorist, but he was never one to just portray things happening in front of the camera as they are. Uh, He always had a lyrical, poetic approach. And his satirical perspective also 
means that he was making films about various people, various characters, with a great deal of compassion, but also a great deal of sort of objective judgment. And he has an eye for the absurd things that happen in the world and in Italy and to people in a very lyrical and tender way, uh, but also, uh, you know, we almost say surreal way of presenting them. So it's also interesting because he he so emphasized his own subjectivity. You know, the, a film like Amacord, I remember, which is supposed to be about Rimini, he completely constructed in Cinecittà, the great film studio modeled after Hollywood studios built under the Mussolini regime. So he's extremely personal. He's very distinctive. He's compassionate. And I think people respond to that. And, you know, obviously, and then I'll shut up so Angel can say a few things. You know, he loves spectacle and the elaborateness of spectacle. And so spectacle comes in many, many different forms. It's his love of the circus. It's his love of Catholic pageantry that all combine to give him a unique vision that is very compelling for people. Angela? I would add the fact that it became an adjective. It became Fellinesque. And it's really interesting that during an interview, he said, my dream was always to become an adjective. So he had a great sense of humor too. Yes. <laughs> yes. So uh, what Fellinesque means is this sort of carnival-like atmosphere, the Baroque atmosphere that he creates in his movies, which uh, is bizarre and uh, in a certain way distant. But at the same time, what I love about Federico Fellini is how it easy it is to relate to his characters, to share the feelings of these characters, the dreams, the illusions, uh, disappointment. And also for me, it's always been a, almost a mystery how it can be at the same time so Italian, so personal and universal and uh, how he, he received this international recognition. Uh, I think he was able to tell the story of Italian people better than anybody else. That's a wonderful observation about how specific and how universal his films are. And Matthew, that speaks to what you mentioned about his compassion. And Angela, I think the point you made about the extreme or extravagant visions and spectacles that helped coin the adjective Fellini-esque. While they are over the top, they don't land as heavy-handed. There's something very logical and accessible about that. Yes. Yes, and I think some of this is linked to the fact that his key is comic, uh, is a comic author. And in fact, maybe not many people know about his early career, but he started as a cartoonist and satirical writer in some uh, magazines, and he kept this comic way of looking at things and so forgiving. And so is one of the characters himself is not judging from the outside. He's also a caricaturist, so he's intensely visual and drawn, you know, as a caricaturist drawn to exaggeration, he will, he can quickly size up what a person looks like or what a situation looks like and then exaggerate it in the most amusing ways. And he takes that perspective uh, and he talks about how, you know, when he works on a film, he begins with an image 
we also have an exhibition at the Carlos Museum with uh, original scripts, uh, original drawings by Federico Fellini, display of his work during his early career where he was contributing to some uh, uh, magazine. And it's going to open on the 1st of October. So that's a great opportunity to become familiar with uh, his work. You know, he never went to film school. He never actually even set out to be a filmmaker. He kind of drifted into screenwriting from the comic satiric writing that Angela was talking about and apprenticed to the great Roberto Rossellini and some other directors of the neorealist movement of that time. And it was only gradually that he he realized that he wanted to be a director. It's that background that he has that gives that, that really decisive perspective that contributes to the Fellini-esque. You chose to showcase Fellini's films chronologically with these screenings. How will viewers see his work evolve from the 1940s up to the end of the 20th century? It's a fascinating development, and there are various shifts. There are a couple of shift points, I would think, uh, and then Ang Angela may agree or she may not. You know, he begins with the films that are shot on location, telling relatively straightforward stories about characters like La Strada, Ivita Loni, which precedes La Strada, is the first great international success, and then on to Knights of Cabiria. When we get to the end of the 50s and La Dolce Vita, he is now painting on a epic scale, a portrait of really desiccated and decaying Italian wealthy society that goes beyond the more intimate kinds of stories that he was telling. Then with eight and a half, he, you know, although there are elements of fantasy and dream and caricature all along, it with eight and a half, he takes this plunge into subjectivity, like we are inside the head of his alter ego, Guido Anselmo, the direct film director, who cannot figure out what film he's making and has all this chaos in his life. So, you know, that's a huge shift. La Dolce Vita and Eight and a Half. I mean, if he'd only made those two films, he would still be incredibly famous. From Eight and a Half, you, you're also getting a kind of decay of personality. The confusion of Guido Anselmo starts to inform his subsequent films. I mean, a couple of years later, he makes Julieta of the Spirits with his wife, the wonderful Julieta Messina, also about a woman's subjectivity and uh, how her ideals of uh, upper middle class life are falling apart when she suspects, suspects her husband of being unfaithful. You get to Fellini's Satyricon, where there are no real protagonists per se. They're just these characters you sort of follow along. Amacord, his last Academy Award winning film, and he had four, which I don't know that there's another director besides John Ford who can claim winning four Academy Awards. It's a portrait of a town. It's a portrait of uh, Rimini. So there are no main characters and he becomes more focused on society and various kinds of interactions, but there's no center there. And that kind of continues for the rest of his career. So it's a really extraordinary development from someone who uses a lot of the technique of Italian neorealism, the episodic storytelling, uh, the shooting on location to someone gradually moving into the studio where he can control things more and recreate his own fantasies 
to someone who just at points just is telling lots of little stories instead of one major narrative. And audiences follow him through this these various shifts. I completely agree with you. I also wanted to mention that in 1960, Fellini met Ernest Bernard, a young gun panelist, and uh, he uh, suggested to Fellini to start writing down his dreams. And so from that period on, he becomes very, Fellini becomes very focused on near-record the dreams become very important. And this is reflected also in the movies from eight and a half on. So that has an impact on the way he did cinema afterwards. Yes, that exploration of the subconscious. But once again, from a non-expert's point of view, it doesn't feel heavy-handed. It's it's just fascinating. He is gathering some stories from Roman life, going back to uh, the comments you mentioned earlier. I mean, La Dolce Vita, spoiler, ends with an orgy, but there was actually a documentation of an orgy that happened in the upper circles of Rome at that time. So he's able to draw upon stories in society, his own fantasies, and just stories suggested you know, by the merest anecdote. I mean, the image of La Strada, La Strada being about a sort of mentally challenged woman who's sold to a strong man who tours Italy, breaking a chain on his chest. You know, according to his biographer, Tullio Kesic, the image of La Strada began when one of his co-writers saw an, a man and a woman pushing a three-wheeled cart like Zampano uses along a rural road. And that was kind of like, that's the image they started with. Uh, so something you catch on your way as you're driving through the countryside, and then a story develops from that. Nino Rota's scores for Fellini films heighten the emotional intensity already depicted in the visuals and in the story. Matthew, when you mentioned La Strada, I, I sighed because the music for La Strada is unforgettable. Would you talk about the role of music in Fellini's movies? You know, music is very emotional. So much emotional depth in Fellini's films, certainly from the start through Eight and a Half and, and elsewhere. And Nina Rota, you know, he's this amazing, astonishing talent. I mean, he's classically trained. He runs a conservatory. He drifts into composing music. And when I think about music and film generally, it's about, it's obviously about affecting the audience, affecting their emotional response uh, without being, you know, very precise. And so Fellini's so tapped into his characters and their sorrows and their excitement, their passions. And Rhoda's music is just marvelous at capturing that. And it may not only be 
the character's emotions. It can be the logic of a particular situation uh, that you find. So Rhoda had this amazing talent for these really simple sounding musical phrases, as you were saying, Lois, with the song that Gelsominas learns to play on the trumpet in La Strada. I also think of the music in Knights of Kiberia, which is just heartbreaking. And the way they were able to spot that music, sometimes a theme played on a solo instrument, but at the end of Knights of Kiberia, swelling into an orchestral accompaniment. And it's, it's marvelous. Nina Rhoda's music is like my favorite dinner party music to play because <laughs> it's always amusing. He's making fun of marches. He's he's riffing on a variety of different classical pieces. And they're always whimsical. And they have such resonance. Even if you haven't seen the films, they're marvelous. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Angela Porcarelli and Matthew Bernstein about Emory Cinematheque's film series Federico Fellini, A Centennial Celebration. Angela, as a teacher of Italian studies, you can give us a sense of the environment, the social climate in which Fellini entered his film career. How do his films emerge from and comment on the fascist movement and the Catholic Church? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, Matthew was mentioning how Fellini starts his uh, work in cinema during a period when neorealism was the prevalent cinematic style. It's uh, after the war, after the fascist period, uh, and uh, finally there's no censorship. And so people want to tell the history of Italy, the, the real Italy. And so talk about the miseries that were produced by the war, the history of resistance and so on. And uh, Federico Fellini, though, was not very interested in politics. And uh, instead of focusing attention on social problems, he makes very different movies and moves away from neorealism. That doesn't mean that uh, it's apolitical. In fact, for instance, a movie that um, focuses on uh, fascism is uh, Amar Court. And uh, once again, we need to go back to this comic key. It deals with uh, fascism with a comic approach. So there is not a strong condemnation. And this might seem as his tender towards the Italian, but it actually makes it harder for Italian people to forget that conformism and, uh, you know, convenience allowed them to go along with what was happening during fascism. So uh, it is a strong denunciation and a parody of the rhetoric of the fascist regime. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, uh, there is a very ambivalent relationship with the church. So one thing that is interesting for <laughs> that he said is that 
if you if you are Italian, it is difficult not to be a Catholic. Even if you declare yourself an atheist, uh, in Fellini echoes something that another famous director, Pierpaolo Pasolini, said: if you are Italian, you cannot be Catholic because uh, you kind of breed it in your childhood in the Catholic education you grow up, which is what happened to Federico Fellini. Uh, you go to church with your parents, go to funerals, and so on. At the same time, he criticizes that. He criticizes the structure of the Catholic Church. And once again, there is a parody to it. What he loves, though, is almost this superstitious element of the Catholic uh, religion, which is the rituals, which is the theater that goes with that. He actually collaborated with Roberto Rossellini in a movie for the script of the movie, The Flower of San Francis. In Italian, the title is Francesco Giullare di Dio, Francis God's Jester. And so the, the, the figure of the jester of God, the fool almost, the religious person that is a fool that is uh, partially superstitious is what fascinated him. He felt close to those kind of people, the fool. And La Strada is a movie that talks about redemption with Gelsomina being herself a sort of fool, but that brings about redemption and hope. Yeah, you know, and it's, it's funny because Fellini, you know, his first couple of films, The White Sheik and... Um, Variety Lights, they, they really are flops, total flops. With Ivy Deloney, things get much more successful. But Fellini is always being criticized for his departure from the neorealist or people's ideas of what neorealism should be. So there's this notion that because he's come out of this movement, his film should always be addressing social problems and their moral failures because they don't. And the fact is, even the the people who are making some of the central neorealist films like Roberto Rossellini go on to make films that are not about social problems. He makes the marvelous voyage to Italy when with Ingrid Bergman and George Sanders about a, a married couple who, who are, whose marriage is falling apart as they travel to Italy to reclaim a, an inherited house. So you have that. And then, you know, the right wingers in Italy are always, you know, they hate La Dolce Vita sort of for airing dirty laundry, but he's winning awards all over the world. And, and his films are successes, great successes with audience, no matter you know what the critics are saying or what the Catholic Church is saying. One of Fellini's greatest and perhaps his most controversial film is La Dolce Vita, which received an official condemnation by the church, although, as you mentioned, Matthew, it was met with critical and popular acclaim everywhere else. What was the insult the church perceived in this film? Well, uh, it displayed the decadence of that period. So it's something that people don't didn't want to focus on. They didn't want to see that, especially at a time where Italy was undergoing the economic boom, there was a sort of enthusiasm for the way things were going there. That world was uh, made of glamour and was fascinating. And instead, uh, Federico Fellini shows that void that is beneath that. If we could return to the Trevi Fountain, that famous scene you mentioned in which 
Anita Eckberg is in the fountain and Marcello Mastriani, you know, jumps in. Is it true that Fellini said she was pure joy to direct in that scene especially because she had no problem just jumping in with makeup, clothing, you know, her costume, everything, and reveling in the moment, whereas Marcello Mastriani was complaining about how freezing the water was, and did he really have to do that? <laughs> you know, he approached uh, directing Anita Ekberg with a, you know, kind of sense of fear, but also delight. And, you know, let's face it, this was her greatest role ever. And, you know, her character, Sylvia, of this, I guess the word, I don't know what the right word is, statuesque. This also marks a shift in Fellini's, you know, the kinds of women characters that he's portraying, right? Because the earlier films with Julietta Messina, she's tiny, you know, she's, she plays these waif-like characters, but it's with Sylvia and La Dolce Vita that he, get, you know, starts exploring. There are many kinds of women in La Dolce Vita, but he starts exploring this phenomenon that then recurs in all his films, eight and a half, you know, of the of these large women who are sexualized and are kind of very tempting and seductive, but also a bit frightening. And that goes, you know, the woman on the beach in eight and a half from his childhood, the woman who's a tobacconist in Amacord, who shows one of the boys her breasts after she pulls the, the fence down on the store. So these kinds of figures are coming out of his dreams as well. You know, there, there is an issue about how Fellini depicts women in his films. Just this dichotomy I've been describing is, is one, you know, what is he really describing? And one of the ways people talk about this is he's sexualizing women, but he's also depicting the typical Italian heterosexual male's view of women. You know, it's a, but it's a very complicated aspect of his work, as is his depiction of people of color. Uh, and it's something that we will be exploring in the series. How have Fellini's cinematic masterpieces influenced today's filmmakers and directors? Well, the influence is huge. You know, he, he was not only the most successful post-war Italian filmmaker, we can consider him one of the greatest, most successful international filmmakers of all times. So, you know, it's almost easier to list the filmmakers who are not influenced by him. But, you know, it's films, it's it's filmmakers. You know, Martin Scorsese did this wonderful documentary, My Voyage to Italy. He talks about Fellini at length. Just in our class yesterday, I was showing the sequence when the narrator in Ivy Deloney, which is about a bunch of uh, 30-something layabouts who have failed to launch. They still live with their parents. They have no ambition and they just kind of hang out. You know, the narrator in that film introduces to the five guys. And then I show the students a clip from Goodfellas where Henry Hill is saying, you know, here's this mobster ah. and this mobster. And each of them acknowledge the camera because it's first person camera. But even a film like Mean Streets, or Barry Levinson's breakthrough movie, Diner. These are any movie, or, or George Lucas's American Graffiti, any movie about a bunch of people just hanging out and doing nothing was hugely influenced by Ivita Loney. And Eight and a Half is a depiction of 
a filmmaker, uh, you know, the uh, working title for Eight and a Half was The, the Beautiful Confusion, uh, La, La Bella Confusione. You know, how many filmmakers made films about them, about filmmakers? You know, Paul Mazursky makes a movie with Donald Sutherland, Alex in Wonderland. Woody Allen makes one of his lesser films, Stardust Memories, about a filmmaker at a weekend retreat with fans uh, that's showing his films and his life is a mess. And the idea of, uh, you know, the surrealism and the Baroque, you, you know, you see this with Fellini's contemporary, Luis Manuel, but, but any filmmaker with that kind of vision is working with that. And in fact, we end the series with perhaps the clearest example of an Italian major director influenced by Fellini, and that's Paolo Sorrentino's The Great Beauty, which was, you know, also won an Academy Award and which many people's people saw as an updating or reworking of La Dolce Vita, a portrait of empty life in Rome. Emory Film and Media Studies professor Matthew Bernstein and Dr. Angela Porcarelli, Senior Lecturer in Italian Studies. Emory's Cinematext film series, Federico Fellini, A Centennial Celebration, is on through November 30th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about a collaborative dance performance that explores what happens when humans interface with artificial intelligence. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our experiences, self-perceptions, and how we interpret the world around us all emanate from our brains. Interacting with the brain through artificial intelligence, that is AI, or other technology, has the potential to change our understanding. Terminus Modern Ballet Theater partnered with Georgia Tech Arts, celebrated choreographer Troy Schumacher and the acclaimed new media artist Sergio Mora Diaz to explore neuroscience and the ethics of intervention with technology. The world premiere of 
set the brain along a path is on stage at the first Center for the Arts this weekend. Choreographer Troy Schumacher joins me now via Zoom with Dr. Christopher Rosell, professor of electrical and computer engineering at Georgia Tech, and Dr. Karen Rommelfanger, president and founder of the Institute of Neuroethics. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Troy, what were your thoughts when you were asked to explore neuroscience and neuroethics through dance? Well, the first thought that came to my mind was, I have no idea what this is going to turn into. And that's really the most exciting type of project where you go into it and you think, I just have a lot of research to do, a lot of learning. And Chris was facilitating a, a, a ton of conversations alongside Karen with a group of brilliant people. And I had this opportunity to spend several months on and off speaking with people. And at first I thought this is an incredibly not dance related concept, but the more I dove into this, I thought, oh my gosh, there's 30 different ballets that somebody could make to this. <sighs> and then I started thinking, oh, maybe this is the one that I want to start with. My goodness. Over the years, I have gained profound appreciation for dancers as storytellers. And I'm curious about how you and the dancers collaborated with Dr. Roselle, with Chris, and Dr. Rommelfanger, Karen, for this piece. So the entire project started with a series of conversations, and Chris and Karen were fantastic in just bringing me up to speed, whether that's recommending articles, uh, giving me presentations. We actually, all, all of us gave each other presentations about our art form and how we create and how we research and how we study. So we all had a really wonderful baseline as we went into these Zoom conversations with different researchers and engineers and scientists about this project. And it was amazing because I had this really wide overview of people who are both really looking at the big picture and into the future, like Karen, and then people like Chris and other scientists who are really looking at, at times, like the minutia of how things work, whether that's studying one part of your eye or whether that's experimenting with AI to make these brain machine interfaces really work together. Mm. And so they basically unloaded a ton of information onto me to synthesize. And what I ended up doing is taking a little bit of each conversation that I had and creating this evening length work that touches on many different facets of that. Karen, would you give us a basic definition of neuroethics? Sure, yeah. Simply put, neuroethics explores the ethical, legal, and social implications of neuroscience. So on a daily basis, I'm exploring things like how neuroscience and emerging neurotech will impact identity, personhood, privacy, and actually pretty much life as we know it. Mm -hmm. 
So there are numerous ethical issues specifically examined in your field, although it seems to be a relatively new field. That's right. It is a relatively new field. It's about 10 to 15 years old, depending who you ask. And it really emerged alongside the advances of science, not, not separately from them. Yeah. And it, it arose out of this understanding that even with things like brain injury, memory loss that comes with that, or diseases like dementia, you hear an expression of loss of personal identity that you just wouldn't hear with something like an appendectomy. Now we can create technologies that can help alleviate that kind of suffering in marvelous ways, the type of work that Chris is doing, and even possibly augment and enhance that brain function to, to enable us to have really powerful lives. So Chris, when you are researching the interactions between biological and artificial intelligence systems, at what point in the development process would you involve someone such as Karen? That's a great question. I think it's important to involve expertise like ethics, you know, all along the way in a project. You know, the reality is, as Troy said, sometimes we're down, you know, in the details of working on something. And, you know, I have to admit, we don't always have that, you know, at the forefront of our mind as much as we should. But I think many of us, as we look at the arcs of the projects that we are working on, um, you know, recognize and work to try and integrate neuroethics, um, you know, as well as conventional research ethics, of course, into our thinking and, and into the arc of, of these projects as we, as we try to deepen our understanding. Mm. So moving to the dance, how are the ethics of artificial intelligence and other technologies explored in step the brain along the path? Well, one thing that I found to be really encouraging and inspiring was learning about all of the work, especially that Chris and many of these scientists are doing to treat and improve incurable, devastating conditions that people around the country and the world are experiencing. And like everything else, these these problems being solved have much wider implications down the road, which is a lot of what Karen studies. And so because of all of this, what really was fascinating to me was when all of these technologies become available for casual use and how that immediately begins to affect society as a whole. So I've created this entire scenario in which people are tasked with thinking about how they would specifically choose to benefit from a technology like this, whether that's improving your memory, improving your physical control, improving your emotional control, improving your focus, and things like that, right, where it just becomes like, oh, I want to be able to have a better sense of balance, right, mm -hmm. or you want to, you know, change how you experience time, right? But when you're dealing with a group of incredibly fit, stellar performers, right? Those are the, that's how they would interact with technology like this. So each character in this ballet is 
has a very specific motivation for why they would want to interface with a computer. And the entire work is broken up into different sections where we follow these specific people. And one of them is trying to slow down their experience of time. One of them is trying to remember something. One of them is trying to improve their physical control. Another one is trying to improve their emotional control. And then finally, we get into the situation where these devices become maybe widespread and then children might end up becoming involved in this process and in this, this task with surviving in society. Like we look at what cell phones have done, right? And that's ubiquitous. And we worry about that type of privacy and that type of giving up control, whether that's, you know, Chris really opened my eyes to this idea of you even think of maps and navigation, right? It starts out where the map is trying to find you the best pathway to get to the grocery store. But eventually the algorithm has to think of the best pathway for you to get to the grocery store as it relates to everybody else, right? So eventually there's this offloading of your individual ability or your you know, the onset, and there's a lot that can go wrong in that process. There's a lot of concerns about privacy, whether that's from a larger entity down or from person to person. But in the midst of all of this, there's a lot of beauty that can occur. So the work goes in and out of kind of the, the joys and sometimes the humor and sometimes the darkness that can be associated with the personal use of technologies like this. So you really created a narrative for the ballet we'll see performed. Absolutely. I would say that there's a narrative attached to this, which is augmented through these incredible projections that are a part of the show, which also include titles attached to this. But throughout this, there are also these abstract explorations of different scientific ideas that I found to be really inspiring from a visceral sense during our conversations, right? There are some just abstract ideas of data or what action potentials, which are the signals that go through our neurons, what those look like in different forms and how that can translate into an architectural exploration of dance, right? Or this idea of what the activities of different cells have in our brains, right? And what that looks like when explored through dance. So there, there are these moments of the piece that are incredibly human. And then there's, there are these moments of this piece that are just, it's just dancing. And you can turn your mind off and just watch these beautiful dancers move and explore these different ideas. You mentioned the projections. Would you further describe how the new media artist Sergio Mora Diaz brings the project to life on stage. Absolutely. So one thing that I found to be very important about this was to give the audience a version of the experience that I had going into this project, which is this idea of these developments that are happening in the field, which are going to change the world and at the same time are something that we don't even think about or talk about or even really know about. And I'm somebody who loves to read the science section of the paper, right? And you, you, you see an article here or there, but what they're doing is incredible and is beautiful work. And at the same time, 
it's something that we want people in the audience to think about a little bit. So when everybody gets to the theater, there is going to be a link where they go and they take a, a, a short quiz where they basically anonymously provide their thoughts on some of these ideas. Like how would you choose to benefit from technologies? And then it goes into a lot of ethical questions and what Sergio is doing in the midst of these really beautiful abstract representations of the brain and action potentials and data and a lot of the science is actually the performance is visually directly impacted by the audience's answers. So the audience gets to see how everybody else in the audience feels about certain topics. And then the audience gets to watch a specific dancer whose character feels a very specific way about these topics. So it's all very beautifully integrated into a larger um, visual world. What we're doing is we're taking these really large concepts and we're trying to bring them down to something that you can just think about and provide some input into. Oh, this sounds fantastic. Chris and Karen, how can dance be effective at introducing neuroscience and some of the ethical issues involved to a broader audience, a general audience? These conversations around emerging technology and the technicalities of it and the complex social implications of them are very difficult to enable. And something you can do scientific demonstrations and you can do kind of public outreach pieces. There's wonderful ways that Chris has enabled these conversations at the Atlanta Science Festival. There's something about different mediums and, and dance as a medium that provides a very special bridge to a general public audience. And the important thing about the bridge that has been created with this collaboration is it's not just going one way. So the hope is to offer an exchange. These are social implications. So we need society to really discuss and fully realize the, the complexities and issues we need to address. So this bridge that, that Troy has set up for us offers a different kind of, kind of embodied vocabulary that allow people to sit and synthesize and then offer additional feedback through exchange through the survey that's been enabled. And hopefully afterwards, there are more conversations spurred to look at these different value conflicts and the kind of future and society that we want together. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the arts has a really powerful role to play in these types of conversations. I mean, my own entry into neuroscience was because I studied the performing arts and I wanted to understand better how our brains were behind the way that we you know, heard and perceived music in my case. And that's what led me to study the brain. So I think Karen's right that the arts have this really kind of privileged place in our society to enable these sort of conversations. I mean, just as one example, when we're researching something new and really pushing the boundaries of what we know, we often are just developing the language to talk about it as we're discovering. And so we don't have this mature language to always talk about what the future implications are. And one of the things that the arts does maybe better than any other discipline is it allows us to communicate and contemplate concepts where our language is insufficient to talk about it in any other way. And so I think bringing, especially a medium 
of dance where you know language doesn't play a role like it might in theater or in music is a really powerful sort of test of this idea that we can use the arts to have a really rich and robust conversation about emerging ideas around neuroscience, neurotechnology, and neuroethics, where our language is not fully developed about what it is that we're learning and what the implications will be in the future. Dr. Christopher Rosell, professor in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Georgia Tech, with choreographer Troy Schumacher and Dr. Karen Rommelfanger, president and founder of the Institute of Neuroethics. Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, Step the Brain Along a Path, is on stage at the first Center for the Arts at Georgia Tech this weekend, September 9th through 11th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series, Speaking of the Arts, today featuring painter Alex Wagner. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of the Arts, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Alex Wagner. I'm a painter living in Atlanta, Georgia. My paintings are based on traditional southern urban landscape and architecture. I enjoy using a dreamy color palette that I refined during my eight years living in Charleston, South Carolina. I love focusing on the overlooked spaces in between, so I find myself painting a lot of wood grain or corrugated metal. There's so much inspiring content around Atlanta with our varied architectural styles. I graduated from Savannah College of Art and Design in 2012. I attended the campus in Savannah and graduated with a BFA in painting. After that, I meandered around for a bit and ended up in Charleston, uh, where I really fell in love with the traditional Southern urban landscape. I find inspiration all around me. Uh, typically, I see something I like while I'm driving or walking around Atlanta, and I'll pull over and take a little picture, which I'll save for later. Uh, like I said, I love the spaces in between, so if there's a spot where two things are colliding and there's a cool uh, building material or architectural um, detail. I love to take pictures of those things. I moved to Atlanta about two years ago. I didn't think I would be in Charleston forever, and it's so nice to be in a big city. I find that Atlanta has influenced my art immensely. It's full of different architectural styles and just the vastness allows you to find inspiration everywhere. 
You can see my work on my website at alexwagoner.com. My Instagram handle is at alexwagoner, W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R. And I actually just finished a mural project with SCAD. Um, It's a basketball court in Adair Park 1. So go and check it out. Painter Alex Wagner and our series Speaking of the Arts. More information about Wagner's work is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Susan V. Booth stops by the artistic director of the Alliance Theater and co-director of their production of Everybody is leaving the Alliance after 21 years to lead the Goodman Theater in Chicago. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.